Thank you. Um, uh, well, uh, I just want to start with a like, short story how I'm included in this uh, event. Uh, when I saw the conference call uh, on the Black Notebooks, uh, I was a part of a small uh, seminar group on Heidegger's Parmenides in Ankara University. Uh, we conducted a very close reading uh, on the book. We often went back in the text and I was very fond of the ideas I found throughout this book. Uh, I'm very interested in contemporary French political thought and after I, uh, I was reading Parmenides, uh, I couldn't st stop but see Heidegger's influence on uh, their ideas. The effect that Heidegger's thoughts on police and res publica had on me was surprising because the year before I had the chance of listening to Professor Peter Tironi's talk on the Black Notebooks in Ankara and that talk was composed of very neg negative thoughts about his uh, political ideas. Uh, I was really under the effect of Heidegger's Parmenides book, but I wasn't also able to make sense of a very different understanding of his black notebooks. Uh, by the time I saw the call for this conference, I was reading the notebooks and realized that there is a possibility of a mutual understanding of notebooks uh, from 2 till 15. Uh, they are the only English translations. Right now I couldn't read the remaining German ones. And the first three volumes of Black Notebooks and Heidegger's lecture notes of his class that come right after uh, these 10 years. So the first three volumes uh, between uh, 31 to 41 and the Parmenides uh, class and Heraclitus class later published as Parmenides was uh, in the winter semester of 42 to 43. I have to be cautious about the fact that there are still more notebooks to be published uh, because I took into account only English versions and those publications and others might present a different framework. Uh, even though there are these limitations, uh, I think I can suggest a complementary reading of the first 14 notebooks and Heidegger's Parmenides. At this point, I would like to thank very much uh, to Professor Ulrich uh, for the conference organization because it was a great chance to work on what I have been wondering about. Uh, in these presentations, I, am offer, uh, I aim to offer a complementary reading between the Black Notebooks and Parmenides. Uh, I realize that Heidegger improves his ideas in the winter class of 42 and 43, but there are certain issues left not well explained if we don't take the Black Notebooks into account. Or, the Black Notebooks are a journey of elaborating what he means by the history of being. But it lacks a clear example, which he will provide in his Parmenides book somehow. I found the reading of these texts to be interwoven with each other, and it was very productive to think them together. It's not really possible to make a chronological or progressive map of the ideas or uh, claim that one book is, or like black notebooks are more valuable than Parmenides or, you know, um, or vice versa. Uh, I couldn't make these kinds of judgments, but I only would like to suggest that the reading of these texts together offers a clear understanding of the history of being. I, I hope to show that today. In order to support my uh, reading suggestion, uh, I will start discussing an article written by William Spanos on Heidegger's Parmenides book. I aim to create a canvas which I will try to decorate later. 
I will start from the last towards the first chronologically. Chronologically, there is no reason I just read these books in this order, so I wanted to write this paper in that order. Uh, after the reference of Spanos, I will outline the argument of Heidegger's ideas in his Parmenides. Then I will appeal to his ideas in the Black Notebooks in order to interpenetrate the main issues. Uh, so William uh, Spanos' uh, article uh, attracted my attention because he claims that the root of Western modernity is not Greek but Roman. Uh, Heidegger, he says, doesn't support the Western tradition by saying that it's a continuation of the Greek culture, but uh, he criticizes it saying that the root of the Western tradition is actually Roman. Heidegger doesn't see the Enlightenment as a continuation of the Greek culture, according to Spanos. Conversely, he was trying to put Greek identity and culture against the Enlightenment spirit. Spanos refers to Martin Bernal and his book Black Athena who wrongly said that, according to him, utopic Greek culture is the invention of the German Enlightenment. Heidegger doesn't support this claim, according to Spanos. Quite the contrary, he refers back to the Greek world as a hybrid culture, never a homogeneous one. What scrutinized the homogeneity was actually Roman culture and its understanding of the truth, based on a dichotomy between Verum and Faustum. What Heidegger tries to do is to heal the damage created by this way of understanding truth by means of the destruction of the Western metaphysics. The Greek culture was an agonistic culture and the Roman culture was an imperial one. The understanding of truth shifts from aletia to veritas, from polymers to the exclusive calculative method. In the Parmenides, Heidegger will explain this transformation concerning the nature of truth. So I proceed to review uh, the book Parmenides. Uh, Veritas as adequatio intellectus ad rem. In his lecture notes of winter semester 1942-1943, later published under the name of Parmenides, Heidegger claims that the milieu of uh, thought from Plato to Nietzsche is an endeavor to make truth attuned to a kind of unsubstantial classification about what is right and what is wrong. He claims that truth cannot be tamed, limited, or calculated, and hence he cannot simply make a compromise about its nature. He puts special emphasis on the thoughts of Anaximander, Heraclitus, and Parmenides. The endless preaching claims that truth has a nature which is unshakable, absolute, and unchangeable, like a solid rock. However, Heidegger paves the way to make visible the different nature of the truth. How? Heidegger argues that in the ancient Greek, the nature of the truth was understood as conflictual and not absolute, like a Roman demarcation between verum and falsum. These two irre irreconcilable understanding of the nature of the truth cover a distance all the way from ancient Greek to, this, uh, to his day, through an important shift of the Roman imperial mindset. What's the essence of truth for us? We don't know, he says because we neither comprehend the essence of truth, nor do we comprehend ourselves. It's important to note here that Heidegger doesn't make a negative comment about the nature of truth. He rather focuses on the possibility of a more profound, essential understanding of truth. Thinking is not defining what is right and wrong. Uh, it is more profound than that. 
Anaximander, Parmenides, Heraclitus are primordial thinkers according to Heidegger. They were at the very beginning of philosophy. But this beginning doesn't imply a primitive antecedence in time. It's an essential history versus ordinary acquaintance. In essential history, beginning comes last. But if one thinks only in the form of calculation, the proposition, the beginning is the last, is nonsensical. The character of essential knowing is entirely different. It concerns being in its ground, where to think is to heed the essential. It's not like a cognitive mastering or a surfacing, but a retreat in the face of being. Heidegger says that thinkers are called thinkers because they think out of themselves and in their very thinking put themselves at stake. The truth is not something whose nature can be def defined clearly. Excuse me. Uh, Parmenides' thinking arises out of a ground as yet hidden to us, which is in relation to the goddess of truth. We cannot talk about the goddess of truth, so we would attribute the power about truth to a goddess. We can only turn towards the call of this goddess by a manner of retreating in the face of being. Anaximander, Parmenides and Heraclitus are the primordial thinkers, not because they open up Western thought and initiate it, but because they think the beginning. The beginning is what is taught in their thinking. Only in this way do these thinkers let the Aletheia be seen adding himself or herself into the process. It's exactly the opposite of a modern approach. The commonality among modern thinkers is an expression of what they are saying in pages of pages of books like what Kant did in the Critic of Pure Reason and Hegel did in the Phenomenology of Spirit, says Heidegger uh, in Black Notebooks. Heidegger creates some opposition between the manner of the primordial thinkers, thinkers like Anaximander, Parmenides and Heraclitus, and the manner of a modern thinker indicating that the world has been out of joint and man is on the path of error. He says the world is out of joint a couple of times in the black notebooks to depict the difference in manner. In the primordial thinkers, the focus was on the difference in awareness of the ways of being instead of gaining knowledge about things. It's why uh, to think to exist and to exist is to unfold. In his lecture course, Heidegger claims that there are four directives about the nature of aletheia or truth. The first directive is the condition that truth both concealed and unconcealed. The realm of the concealed, unconcealed comes upon us if we do not deceive ourselves by, by what is more immediately familiar and accessible in what is expressed in the banal uh, titles Veritas and Truth. Uh, strictly speaking, the word truth doesn't give us anything to think, and still less anything to represent intuitively. The second directive is the fact that the nature of Aletheia is conflictual. The third directive is about the restless state of truth in oppositional relations because of its conflictual essence. Heidegger claims that this oppositional character of truth was inspected by Hegel and Schelling in modern philosophy, but they improperly tried to formulate it by means of synthesis on the basis of the subject instead of accepting the nature of Aletheia as it is. The subjective knowing prevents one to be open uh, to the nature of Aletheia and pushes the subject into the position of subjective knowing and obeying the demands of what is right and wrong. The conflictual nature of Aletheia cannot be finalized by the third one, namely synthesis. 
The essence of truth is always in oppositional relations, which is characterized as polemos. Truth is not beyond all conflict, and something has to be non-conflictual. The usual theory of truth dictates untruth as the opposite to truth. Something is either true or false. However, according to the nature of aletia or the state of being, always in oppositional relations, the true and the false cannot be taught separately from each other. The fourth directive is to be open towards the disclosement of the truth in time. This openness and freedom reconcile. The Greek culture was not a passive gaze on the basis of thea. It was an active spectatorship of recalling what one has forgotten. The importance of Plato in the history of philosophy is that he is the founder of the Western metaphysics, which relies on the logos. It's known that Plato uses the mythos in his dialogues all of a sudden, and this is criticized sometimes as being improper. Heidegger claims that it is not a contradiction because Plato still belongs to what was before him, the ordinary thinking. He tries to make these features of Aletia visible in Plato's thought. It's possible to refer to two founding mythos in Plato's Politeia, the allegory of the cave in Book 7 and the myth of Ar at the very end of the book, uh, book time. Heidegger thinks that it's possible to observe uh, the concepts polis, mythos, and aletia as intertwined with each other in Plato's work on uh, politics. He doesn't appeal to the law of excluded middle when he applies these concepts. He rather appeals to Eros in a continuous conflict, Apollomos, as a result. Heidegger relates the allegory of the cave to aletia and the myth of art to the latter. It's possible to say that they are complementary myths when one thinks the nature of the truth. Polis also come inside as a political form at the realm of the Aletia Lete. Aletia and Lete have to be found together. They cannot exclude each other. It's not possible to put one as truth that's canonized and the other as untruth which is not desired. Aletia and Lete mean the opposite of each other, but like two sides of a coin, one is unconcealment and the other is concealment. This is the mythos true which being makes itself visible. The allegory of the cave is about remembering and the myth of her is about the forgetting. In neither of them does the subject take the leading role, whether uh, she is contented with what is uh, her share. Heidegger formulated as I'm concealed when he refers to Odysseus, who, unnoticed by others, shed tears. He says, be concealed in the way you conduct your life. The first of these myths is about the light and the other is about the dark, between life and death. The first one makes the conflictual nature of truth visible in the body and the other makes it visible in the soul. Truth belongs to both being and nothingness. The Mutafar is about a soldier uh, who died while fighting and went to the realm of souls. Uh, Heidegger talks about this in Parmenides' book in, in a like, broad sense, so I wanted to just uh, take uh, in this uh, conversation and uh, pre presentations. Uh, when he reached the other world, the gods tell him that he is assigned to talk about what he has witnessed in the journey. Plato talks about the other world of spirits, where, according to this myth, I spent 20, uh, 12 days in. I says that some souls were going towards the sky and some were going to the underworld in a diamonic topos. Every soul receives his her punishment or reward and chooses another life on the way back. 
They don't come beside the MLS River where everyone has to drink some of the water to forget what they have seen only to remember it later. Er didn't drink it in order to talk about what he has witnessed. Er is not a passive receiver but an active spectator. It's not a dream but a real life experience. These myths tell us something about human life in the real world. People aren't passive receivers of the truth but experience the truth. The gaze of a modern subject calculates conquers, outwits, and attacks. The look of the modern subject is the look of the predatory animal, glaring, says Heidegger. The gaze of a citizen in the police doesn't claim a right on the things he stares at. His, her relation to the truth is not about having the truth, but rather experiencing the truth. Heidegger talks about the metaphor in his course on Parmenides because he wants to emphasize the side of the letter in the dimension of truth as aletia. The dimension of forgetting should be considered as lethe versus aletia or truth versus untruth. When something is unconcealed, there then is a concealment, oblivion for Heidegger. It's not possible to think there is a mystery to be solved, lethe is included as a part of aletia. They together compose the truth. It's not proper to think lethe as an opposite to aletia. Lethe can be understood in relation to the pseudos which is not the absolute opposite of Aletia. Oblivion is understood by Heidegger as subjects simply being exposed at the very moment of the happening. Things make themselves be forgotten, and even this forgetfulness is forgotten, which is an oblivion of oblivion. Heidegger talks about this unconcealment and concealment in relation to the metaphor. The dominant place that the souls inhabit is concealed from the police. The souls come back to the world, fuses after they forget about this demonic place, then they undergo the process of recollection or unconcealment. The concealment is a part of the souls and becomes a part of their existence. This forgetting passes through the lives of every citizen. It's not possible to find a pure forgetting. It hides itself from the human gaze and only shows itself when human beings retreat in front of being. Modern subjects themselves cannot retreat because their relation to the world is not on this level. They found the world in accordance with self-subjectivity, they totally forget the essence of the forgetting, and they become indifferent towards this forgetting. Lethe and Fusis are related to each other as a result of the conflictual nature of Aletia. They do not negate each other. Heidegger claims that the understanding of the nature of Aletia has changed radically in the Roman period. Instead of the essential pair of the nature of truth as Aletia and Pseudos, the Romans start using Verum and Folsom. Heidegger severely criticizes this wrong translation, saying that this marked a change in the history of being. This different conceptualization caused the truth to be understood differently. As the truth defines the political milieu, Likely defines the police as a milieu uh, where Aletia and Lethe interplay. This mistranslation of Pseudos as Lethe defines the political milieu in Roman times. This conceptual change transforms the truth towards what is correct and furnishes us with the power of absolute good, dominant and stable decisiveness and defines what is out of this realm, labeling it as wrong. Pseudos means concealment, obscurity, and Aletia makes the division between subject and object impossible. 
However, Verum and Folsom were the turning point for defining human subjectivity as a sovereign in modern times. Cusidos makes itself visible by signs. Folsom is a sign of absolute downfall. The imperial one commands and constitutes what is correct as truth, defines what is correct as absolute truth, and fixes it, and excludes anything else as the exact opposite of this and as wrong. In the police, Aleti and Pseudos organized the common life of people in accordance with Dicke. In Roman law, Eustum commands and forces the creation of a hierarchical sovereignty. In Roman Respublica, the meaning of gaze changes towards Benevidibiki. The look of the Roman people consumes the things he she looks at. The citizens of the polis were receptive to what was going on around them and never had a residue towards mastering the things around them. In the imperial republican form of Roman times, the look, the correct, consumes everything by means of label, labeling right and wrong. The order of the polis was dike, but the form of the Roman political milieu is imperare, to establish. The justice in the polis was an expression of aletia. The justice in Roman times was an expression of what was defined as correct and right. Heidegger claims that the change in the nature of truth was possible through homoiosis. Homoiosis fixes the concealed one as a representation on the basis of semblance. Because of homoiosis, veritas and falsum started having fixed definitions via representation. Homoiosis caused an assimilation of expressions and thoughts and took the ratio of man as a measure. The in-between moment of unconcealment and concealment of aletia in the polis transformed into a hierarchical movement dictated from top down according to the human ratio which calculates and defines itself. Justice was ordered according to the calculation and this calculation became become so powerful that according to Heidegger it makes the nature of truth in ancient times completely forgotten. It assigns itself with an absolute power. According to Heidegger, the history of being is nothing but this transformation of the nature of truth. It's the history where logos rules and mythos is excluded. This caused philosophy to be an empirical science of human beings. This, the principle that the polis revolves around is aletia, and it was so assimilated that it lost its meaning of energia between unconcealment and concealment. It became evidentia. The polis was centerless, ordinary, and radically dialogic. Rome was anthropocentric and barbaric. In the polis, citizens lived according to their own nature and truth. But in Rome, the citizens didn't have a truth by nature. Uh, now I proceed to the contributions of the ideas uh, in the ponderings to the Heidegger's Parmenides book. Uh, as I mentioned in the beginning, there are only three volumes uh, I could read composed of 14 uh, notebooks uh, which are published in English uh, out of Heidegger's total of 33 uh, black notebooks. Um, sometimes like they call it as idea diaries. The period of the published notebooks are the years between 1931 and 1941. As uh, I guess everyone here has experienced uh, this for themselves, it's not really possible to suggest a summary of these notebooks. Heidegger sometimes is very fond of an idea and talks about it for quite quite some time, and other times he keeps changing the subject at every paragraph. When I tried to conduct a comparative reading between his Parmenides book and these notebooks, 
I thought that I could possibly offer a summary about the common themes between these works. Starting from the beginning, I will now try to depict the idea he cultivated through these 10 years, and that, as I suggest, uh, he then formulated during his class in the winter semester of 1942 to 1943. Uh, at the end, I will suggest that these works are complementary. Uh, Soren uh, goes with Olsen, says that young Heidegger tries to awaken the question of being. The later Heidegger tries to write the history of being. I think the Black Notebook shows this transition towards the history of being. It's also related to the way of philosophizing. I would like to start with a couple of quotations from the second notebook, uh, just to show that it's very related to the Parmenides. If being is questioned discursively, what forms first is concealment? Philosophy creates the concealment. Language changes essentially, not primarily in vocabulary, but the mode of saying and hearing. It was from passage 64. Passage 81, philosophizing, formative release of the happening of being, the setting up of truth ahead, ahead of individual truths, the transforming of traditional truth. Passage 102. Philosophy, least of all, is capable of eliminating the already all too severe plight, or even the pointing out ways to that end. On the contrary, philosophy must remain hard against the plight and keep itself hard to the wind of its own storm. For momentary and eager fussing over the situation demonstrates only that such fussing always without importance. For all too long already in philosophy, there has prevailed an eager flight from its task. For all to great a distance, there has spread an unlearning of the capacity to wait for the growth of the essential thinkings. 116. That the Greeks, so entirely without science and prior to it, created philosophy. 122. How far advanced are the Greeks over us? There is accordingly, accordingly no returning to them, only a catching up. But it requires the power of throwing oneself forward in a primarily arising discursive questioning, and that means simply to liberate the design in today's humanity. Yet thereby, for the first time, an innermost act of beginning and questioning on the part of the Greek was bent over toward the results and still more toward the first truth. 138. We must place ourselves back into the great beginning. We must go back to the place where the human being throws himself adrift into the essence of being and refine the swinging art of the throwing, clear this trap for humans. The ground laying as question of the conditions of possibility, this respect of questioning rests completely on an understanding of being in the semblance of being, an understanding fabricated on presence, thereby the ground is sacred in advance and through the mode of questioning, the horizon of possible understanding is also already circumscribed. Why must we place ourselves back into the beginning? Because we have been thrown off the track. To give oneself uh, up to the distinct injunction, that's the true basic relation to the beginning and signifies even the re-beginning of the beginning. That beginning is thoughtful poetizing. Might we again dare to learn about Greeks and from them, so that in the re-beginning we come to st struggle against them. The essential, the last one, the essential must therefore remain in silence now and for the future. Only if we are actually errant, actually going to errancy, can we strike up against truth. 
All these quotations from the year 91, I think, shows that like in the beginning of his lecture in 1942, Heidegger was thinking about the same concepts. In the following books, he talks about gods and how the gods can show the way towards new beginning. Then he talks about the first and the second beginning in terms of event. He then proceeds to differentiate between science and philosophy on the basis of his understanding of truth, like in Aletia, Pseudos, and Verum Falsum. He identifies philosophy with the former and the science with the latter. I think there can be three important contributions to the Parmenides book from the Black Notebooks. The first one is Heidegger's differentiation between historiology from history and his identification of them with science and philosophy, respectively. He doesn't make this differentiation in his Parmenides class, and I found it very helpful for understanding the history of being. Uh, I quote, uh, versus a great work of art is essential to philosophy and to the poetry which prepares philosophy that they are comprehended at the earliest, only after two or three generations. The one who here strives for contemporaneous understanding makes himself histori historiological, in other words, something past, whereas he must be truly historical, in other words, something futural. I found this discussion about historiology and history helpful because he, in Parmenides he doesn't make the difference very clear. He says clearly that one should away from historiology because it's a constant and indeed necessary falsification and obstruction of history. It's a clear warning about the history of being shouldn't fall in historiology of being, so the main task should be going back to the beginning. The basic experience shouldn't be a lived experience, but to live into history. He, uh, he talks about this uh, uh, in the following uh, part. Everyone has lived experiences of everything, and no one bestows himself on what is unique, for nowhere is there the compelling work of decision. Then he proceeds in Notebook 7, criticizing historiology, stating that historiology as a science arises out of a determined form of Western history. The second contribution might be the differentiation between errancy and error. I prefer to interpret errancy as pseudos and error as falsum because he makes almost the same set definitions like he did in Parmenides. He says in the Black Notebooks that errancy is the most concealed gift of truth. For in it, it's bestowed the essence of truth as the stewardship of the self-refusal and as the purest preservation of being in the unrecognizable protection of what always is. To be sure, errancy is, not, uh, is here not error, an established mistake, the failure of truth as correctness. He continues to, continues to say that the sciences do not have errancy, but error, mistakes and incorrectness. Philosophy, on the contrary, is a power to be errant. I think this is the same relation with pseudo and falsum. Then in section 24, he differentiates not and no from the one that's oppositional. I found all these sections to understand pseudos and falsum better. In 31, he says that the truth of being co-configures the essence of history and the knowledge of that essence. I quote, a great errancy will have to arrive in order to create a space against what is flat and spaceless. On the errant ones, who leave all correctness and incorrectness equidistantly behind, may traverse the spatio-temporal field of being with the passion constantly and decisiveness required, so that a clearing might come to being at all. 
In this clearing, being openly refuses itself and thus through distrust of self, withdrawal, impasse the creative mass to the place where to them beings emerge as the preservation of being. Beings emerge as the preservation of being so that beings might become this preservation, the truth of being must find a grounding. So that this finding might occur, there must be the errancy which is kindled out of the burning hearts of the errant ones and which gleams precisely in the guise of the night." Unquote. The third contribution can be the direct differentiation between dialectics and the situation of in-between. He says that Heraclitus and Parmenides do precisely not know dialectics. If we read them in that way, we are merely following the Platonic and then the Hegelian interpretation. The effect of dialectics on ordinary opinion and speech consists in our becoming less and less capable of carrying out, or even knowing in advance what dialectics precisely seem to accomplish, the overcoming of oppositions. The dialectical overcoming is insidious in that it's precisely compelled back into the oppositions and their entrenchment and precisely doesn't ask where, uh, whether that which bears an opposition might not be of a completely different essence uh, and be the origin of oppositionality only as the oppositionality of representation." Unquote. Uh, he didn't directly criticize this dialectics in Hegel, Plato, in Parmenides, and he never directly talks about the situation of being in between, even though one can find many passages about it in the Black Notebooks. I think these uh, contributions can be good to understand the Parmenides truly. But the black notebooks also can benefit uh, from Parmenides. I found two aspects of it. Firstly, even though fragmentarily he talks about the same issues, he doesn't provide a clear example of the history of being. I think the transformation of the polis into the Roman Empire and the transition from Pisidos to Folsom can be complementary to the black notebooks and the change into the nature of truth. Secondly, even though Heidegger talks about the semblance of being in the black notebooks, he uh, doesn't explain it as well as its uh, relation to the concept of homoiosis. He talks broadly about homoiosis in Parmenides, so it can, it can be a complementary for a better understanding of the concept. Thank you.